In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Don Andrea McCarthy. Don is an adult survivor of abandonment, parental abduction, and severe parental alienation. She was abducted by a mother at the age of four, and it took her forty-four years to finally reunite with her father. It is an incredible story that illustrates the power of not giving up when it comes to parental abduction. She is also the CEO of Securing Everything, the chair for the National Parents Organization of Florida. An associate producer of the hit documentary film *Erasing Family*. Don is also the co-founder and host of the Humanly Possible channel found on Facebook. Now, this is part one of a three-part series with Don, and I'm joined by my co-host for this series, Thomas Saviskas, a lesbian parent from Japan. If you want to know more about Thomas's story, you can just go back to the episode that we did with him a while back. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey Don, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast. I know that your story is incredible. It's one of the longest known abduction and also reunification story. So, in order to talk about what exactly happened to you and your dad and all that, let's start with a very simple question. Give us a general outline of when did this particular abduction happened and how did it start? It started back when I was two, actually. Um, two or three. We're we're kind of we don't have exact dates, so we're it's basically a guess. Anybody, you know, between the my mom and my dad and me trying to figure out timeframes. Of course, uh, my mom isn't always um, willing to share that type of information, but we think it's around two or three years old that she left. Um, she moved out, and we visited her occasionally. Um, went at her apartment, so she didn't leave town yet. She just kind of moved out and was um, separated from my dad and I. So she left me with my dad. And then the I remember visiting her one time. Um, there was some commotion, and the, you know I was so young I don't remember all of the details. But the next thing I know, she had left town, and that was the last time I saw her for quite some time. It was when I was almost five. Um, like March, just two months before my fifth birthday, she had gotten remarried and her new husband found out that she had a daughter. So he decided that he wanted to um, kidnap her daughter to, you know, put together their family. Now they were married and he had a daughter. So that's kind of how it all began in the very, very, very beginning. You know, normally when children get abducted, They'll be gaslighted by their parents um, in many ways. So I'm just wondering what kind of reasons your mom or your mom's new husband gave you for taking you away from your dad. So um, my mom basically did the same same type of gaslighting that I, you hear other um, targeting or yeah targeting parents do is they try to make the child afraid. So she, she would tell me horrible stories about how dangerous he was, that um, the hell's angels wanted to kill him. So I better be careful in, in any kind of um, suggestion that I would consider finding him. She would come up with these stories to kind of build that fear in me so that I wouldn't want to share or I wouldn't want to find him. That would kind of make me apprehensive. She told me that he had done things like um he one of the main stories is that he brought home somebody that had it was a woman and her child and their german shepherd and that when she woke up she had this woman in her bed so she wasn't sure what was going on with that and her story was that he brought home another woman and put her in 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 their bed um later on i discovered that he brought her home because she was out on the streets 
and he didn't want a woman with her child to be out on the streets in L.A. And so he allowed her to come to the house so that she would at least have a safe place to sleep until she could figure out what she needed to do. So there was always another side to it. So my mom would paint it in her perspective to make it look like he was such a terrible person. Um, so throughout the years, anytime I mentioned my dad, she would constantly, once she corrected me, I wasn't allowed to call him my dad because she enforced me to, or forced me to call her husband dad. And later on he had adopted me. So legally he was my dad, but it was, it was always, um, what is it when someone tells you something over and over and over again, and they believe it to the point that if they keep saying it, you'll believe it as well. So anytime she needed to profess, yeah, she wanted to profess something that he did. She'd always start it with your dad. So she was starting in with, this is what I believe. And this is what I want you to believe and everybody else to believe. Yeah, that's practically yeah. gaslighting. So um, I, I couldn't even talk about my dad for very long. I remember that it was nixed in the butt all the time that the conversation was basically over and he was a horrible, terrible person and he did all these things. And, and over the years, it just kind of died down. So it wasn't as constant. But in the beginning, it was very constant because I remembered my dad. You can't take that memory out of a child's brain and and replace it with a replacement person. So I would often um, cry myself to sleep, wondering if my dad was going to come and rescue me because the circumstances in the living situation that I was in after being abducted, because they literally abducted me. They flew down to LA and they staged this full-on um, child abduction. And my dad probably thought I was dead in the street somewhere. And, you know, and according to talking to him after the fact, he did. He didn't know if I was dead or alive. But yeah, if I want to go slightly in depth into that, right? Because I, I, I read your Facebook post that the video you posted, uh -huh. you said that uh, you were literally like, you know, uh, put on a houseboat for a week and then uh, you were moved uh, to an airport where a plane was ready to take off kind of thing. Yep. Where it's literally quote unquote abduction. It right? was. Can you explain what exactly happened? Because that seems like a scene from a movie. Sure. So right after they got married, um, he they they just talked about putting their family together. So they arranged all of the um, all of the steps were in place. So they had an airplane, they had a, a rental car, they they had this houseboat that they were able to use for that the you know, either friends provided or something. So they flew down into L.A. Um, and rented a car and then parked outside the apartment building that I lived in with my dad. And in the mornings when my dad went to work, I would walk down the stairs and up the stairs because it was like an end unit. So I had to go down the stairs and just to jog over a little bit to the next flight of stairs to get to their house. Right. So I was on the way up the stairs when I heard someone calling my name and I didn't, I didn't really realize it was it was my mom but when it finally did um dawn on me for lack of a better word uh, I realized my mom was calling me and when I saw her she was down at the end of the stairway and she knelt down with her arms out and so of course I recognized her and I ran to her because you know I I probably missed her I didn't know what why she was gone I was too young to understand anything that was happening between the adult relationship right I just knew that that was my mom so I ran down the stairs, and as soon as she grabbed a hold of me, she ran for the car that was just outside, you know, on the curb, um, curbside. So once we got to the car, she threw me into the front seat in between her and her new husband. And as she's getting in behind me, pushing me closer and closer to him, she professes that this is your new daddy. And I, I'm, I'm trying to push against the seat that she's pushing, you know, towards me towards him. I'm trying to push away. Like, I'm thinking, that is not my daddy at all. I remember thinking, that's not my dad. And I was afraid of him because he had pilot glasses and this great big, huge mustache. And he was a stranger to me. And now you're telling me that's my daddy and I don't believe you. That whole ordeal was so tra traumatizing to me. Um, and when you're in that position and you've already been traumatized to that extent, everything else that happens is starting off on a tra traumatic event. You know, it's it's just adding to it. So when when my mom then would later say something about this is your dad, you just did it because the whole thing is trauma. So once they got me in the car, they drove me down to San Diego. 
where they did have the houseboat right off right off the shore and we hid out there for about a week where they wanted to let the investigation die down because there's a full-on child abduction FBI's involved police departments everybody's looking for this missing child that really wasn't missing so when they felt safe um, they decided to go ahead and move me to the airport where they had a plane that was ready to taxi and take off as soon as I was on board. And that's basically the end of my time with my dad, where once, once we left the state, um, that was, it was starting a new life. Like that life ended the moment that plane took off and my new life started. And all of a sudden I had a new home. I had new clothes, new toys. I didn't have anything from my previous life. Not even the parent that I was close to because my mom had been gone for a year or, so, or maybe even two years. We're, we're not sure. So nothing was familiar except that, you know, I knew my name and I knew my mom. Everything else was new. Uh, when, you, when you said that they readied the plane uh, to be taxied, uh, was the plane private flight or uh, was it just? Yep. Uh, it was a uh, private plane. Mm -hmm. Like a, a, little, a little Cessna or something like that. Yeah, it was like, I think, a King Air Learjet type thing, little plane, smaller plane. And and can you can you remind our listeners how old you were at the time when this was taking place? I was four, almost five. So this this was, um, there was two months before my birthday, um, right, this, you know, just weeks after they got married. Wow. Yeah. So it's something very, very unusual. So, and, and just to tell you a little bit about why he would be interested in, why would this new husband be so interested in abducting his new wife's child is because of the stories my mom told him that she had ran in fear of her life and claimed that there was some, that my father was violent towards her, um, which wasn't true. Um, if, if, it's it's kind of a touchy circumstance when when we bring in domestic violence when you're talking about parental alienation and i acknowledge that there is um some some cases where that is definitely the case so i don't want to speak for that i want to just speak for the fact that in this circumstance it was not true that my father was violent and she felt like she had to run for her life there was a lot of other circumstances and stories that I can't share at this point. Um, and I might share it in the future, but I have to know that I share it in the most um, careful way because it's, it's, there's a lot of information in there that could hurt the people involved. So I don't want to hurt my mother. I don't want to um, call her out. And I don't want other people hating her for her role. Um, even though, we know it's wrong, but my goal is to heal and to prevent, not to go backwards and and try and go after her, make her accountable. Because I don't think um, in a lot of circumstances like this, we're not going to necessarily get an apology. There's not very many targeting parents that will come and say, wow, I'm sorry. So um, I think I got the, the most I'm ever going to get as far as an apology. She didn't know any better. And with my studies, on as I go through my healing process and studying the epigenetics, the transgenerational trauma, things that have occurred in her world when she was a child and her experiences are just repeated. And then I go back further and I can see that that's happened and occurred over and over again. So it wasn't necessarily that there's anybody to blame in this situation. It It's unfortunate that we were taught that parents weren't really required, so it didn't really seem like um, we were doing anything other than what we thought was appropriate or what she thought was appropriate. So she had told him that he was a dangerous person. And so her new husband, <clears throat> being the I'm going to be your knight in shiny armor, armor kind of guy, her champion, he decides that he needs to rescue his wife's daughter from this terrible person that he's learned about. So he, he may have had good intentions, even though it's still against the law to abduct a child in all 50 states. The intentions 
were not realized and were not even considered as far as what is the trauma that you're, you're giving to the child. And that trauma is a life sentence. It's not something that they just wake up and, okay, now everything's normal and I'm fine, or wait until they're 18 and then snap, everything goes back to normal. That doesn't happen for us. So the, like I said, he might have had great intentions. He might have felt like he was doing something right by his wife and protecting his, her daughter, um, but he, he only took her word for it. There was no evidence or anything backing it or anything like that. So it was all done just basically to, um, to do, do this for his new wife. Uh, how did you found about this uh, and when? Uh, about what kind of intentions led your, uh, so to speak, stepdad to to come and abduct you? Well, I've heard I've heard my mom and him talk about it when I you know, growing up. We we talked about my abduction like as if it was funny, like it was a joke. So she would tell friends that yeah, we went down there and kidnapped her, and just didn't even deny it. And it was something that. Uh, you know, growing up, I thought it was, you know, it was like a joke until I found my, um, I found a group of people. I was actually doing a, um, my bachelor's in criminal justice victimology. I was looking for research on childhood abductions and human trafficking for my thesis. And I found a group of people that were abducted by their parents. And before I knew it, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's my story. And the more I dove into that, the more I started researching that and learning more about these people. And I was involved with them that all of a sudden I was participating in a study, an international study of the the long-term effects of parental abduction. So that just totally took off and started me, I think, on this path of um, advocacy and trying to figure out what did happen to me. Now, all of a sudden, my mind switches, like the switch goes off. And I'm like, okay, so that wasn't a joke. It it was real. And it's illegal. What does that mean for me? And so I started doing the, the research and studying and all along, as I find out more things. Um, this was even before I found my father. You know, then when I did find my father, it just amplified it even more. And that's why I do as much of this work as I can, because it's, it's taking me a decade to get this far. And that's with knowing and understanding what I've been doing, where kids and other adult survivors may not even realize it yet to this, to this extent. They could be my age and not even realize this has actually happened to them. And if you think about parental abduction, it's not different than parental alienation. It's just another form of it. Yeah, before we get too in-depth into like how you found your dad and all that, I want to bring it back uh, to what was happening while you were growing up with your step family, mainly because uh, not, I know that we, ta- we talked to a lot of parents whose kids got abducted, but you are one of those that like, you know, actually grew up through it, which means kids who are listening or teenagers who are listening to your episode now will be able to understand if the same thing is happening to them, right? Yes. So uh, you mentioned a lot about uh, gaslighting, and I believe that your mom was okay talking about it because she managed to, I don't know, quote-unquote fool everyone by saying it's a domestic abuse situation, right? So people were like, oh, that's good on you for saving the kids. And that's happening till even like today, mainly because we hear a lot of parents uh, who got their children abducted or like, you know, got alienated from their children say the same thing to us. But with that said, right, your situation gets worse after that because you were kind of rejected by your staff family. Am I right? Oh, yeah. And it even gets worse than that. So um, a lot of people, sure, a lot of people might say, well, you know, you were probably better off or, you know, it's just the way life is. Those are the cards you were dealt. Why didn't you just deal with it? Well, the the circumstances went to I was with the the caring parent. I was with the parent that was there that never left me. I was taken from him and put into a world where I wasn't sure if this parent wanted me because she had already left me. So she, now I'm dealing with multiple abandonment issues at this point already. Then when I am introduced to this new step family and all of a sudden I have this new stepsister who's six years older than I am 
who hated me from the second I stepped into the house because she heard me call her dad, dad. I was told I was forced to call him daddy from the very moment we met. So when all of a sudden this, his daughter Here's another child, this other woman who she hated already because she wanted her parents back together. He's remarried now to this woman. And now this woman has a child. So now the trauma is on both sides, right? Now we have me, I'm in my trauma, traumatic experiences. And this, this girl who's also going through traumatic experiences just by nature. Yeah, I can imagine it should have been traumatic for her to suddenly have a sibling. Right. Yeah. So... As as time went on, she took out her aggressions on me, and she literally beat the crap out of me for the you know for eight years. And the last time that she touched me, she was studying for her finals. Um, she was in a junior in high school. I was in the sixth grade, and I I was still in the house, and I saw her. She was strawberry blonde, very fair skinned, never could tan, always burned and peeled, and she's gonna sit outside and study for her finals in the sun. And I thought it was funny. And I'm a, I'm a, I was always joking, trying to make light of things, trying to make people laugh. So I decided I was going to lock the door just as a joke. But the thing that I didn't realize is that you cannot joke with people that are violent. So I made a very bad decision that day to lock her out of the house. And what happened afterwards is when she came up to the sliding glass door and she's looking and you might've heard me, if people have followed my story at all, there's times where I talk about my demon and my demon is my stepsister. And she would literally morph in front of me and I could see the facial changes. I could see her personality change. I could see her physical appearance change. And it was it was scary. I was in fear of this person. And I knew when that switch flipped. And when I saw this person walk up to the sliding glass door with the demon eyes who looked at me like as if I could touch you right now, I would kill you. And a fear just sank through my entire body. And I was almost paralyzed with the thought of, oh my God, what did I just do? I'm a sixth grader. And now I'm in fear of my life. And I knew if I stayed in the house, she was going to get to me and kill me. So she's already ran around the front of the house and is banging in the front door, which was solid oak. She literally took the entire door frame and all in, crashed it into the floor. And I'm running out the garage door at this point, And I'm jumping on my bike and I'm trying to escape because my demon is now after me. So as I ride around the front of the house, she catches me at the corner and she literally picks me up off my bike by my throat. She's got her hands around my neck and she lifts me off my bike and she proceeds to crush in as hard as she could. And I could see it in her face, the determination to just end it. And as the darkness started closing in on my sight, like looking at her, her demon eyes were the last thing that I saw before I started passing out. And then for some reason, the miracle that saved me was when she finally released me and I dropped to the ground. And the only thing that broke her trance on me was the fact that our parents just pulled into the driveway. So they're, them pulling into the driveway at that crucial moment saved my life because she dropped me. And when, when I hit the ground, I don't know if that knocked air into me or or what, but it it I remember just that large, deep um, gasp of air, trying to breathe again, while this voice inside my head says, "Run, just run." I didn't know. I didn't even realize that our parents were there. I never even saw them. I just knew that I was breathing again and I needed to run. So I did. I ran to the neighbor's house and I hid behind their couch for a while. And when they finally were able to convince me that I needed to go home because my parents were looking for me, they wanted me to come home. They wanted to talk about everything that just happened. When I got there, they had, I had my sister and I refer to her as Sona. So they had Sona sitting at the table, table and they wanted me to sit down next to her. And I remember thinking, are you guys out of your mind? 
this girl just tried to kill me and you want me to sit at the table next to her. And when I did sit, sit down with my back to her, <laughs> I just didn't want to even see her. They, my stepfather, I call him Mo, hands us both a piece of paper with pencils and says, I don't want to hear a word. I just want you to write it down. And I'm thinking, okay, what just happened? So while he's trying to prop up the front door so that the house could be secured, he's expecting me to write down what happened. And now I'm learning that they saw it. And I'm thinking, what do I need to write down? If you saw it, then there is no explanation needed, right? And I wouldn't write it down. I don't know if she wrote it down. I don't remember. But I just remember that at this moment, it was very, very clear to me that my life didn't have value, that my, neither one of these parents were going to protect me or stick up for me. And that's when I started changing myself and being less careful. I was very careless about a lot of things that I did in my teenage years. And that just went on into, um, well, I was grateful for one when she actually did go to college because I finally felt free that I was going to now be able to enjoy life because she's no longer there with me. She's no longer my demon. She's not sleeping in the bedroom next door to me. She's not sitting at the table next to me. She's not coming home with me after school anymore. I'm finally free of this person. So we moved to California after that. And when I tried to share this story with my new friends, they didn't believe me. They bullied me and harassed me for being a liar, for telling stories. And so, um, oh, let me back up just a second, because we were talking about being rejected by the step family. So when this happened with Sona and the, the strangulation, you know, um, I was already on the outside of the step family anyway. They, they didn't like having me around. Um, they didn't like my mom either. So it wasn't like we were trying to build this big family. Um, I never met my stepfather's father, um, not until the day we went to his funeral, which my son was eight weeks old. So I was already an adult. Um, they, they refused to invite us to any, um, my, my stepdad and my mom were invited, but I was excluded, ex you know, ex specifically excluded. Um, so this this family never accepted me as part of it, even though I was adopted into it, legally adopted into it. They still rejected me. So I'm being I'm rejected here by my stepsister and the rest of my stepfather's family. And then I go to California, thinking I'm starting over. Life's going to be great. I don't have this living over you know hanging over my head anymore. And now my new friends don't believe me. And I'm being rejected all over again. And that was just so traumatizing to the extent that they were threatening to kick my butt at church camp. You know, it was it was just unbelievable the way people that and these were my church friends on top of that. So these were people that were supposed to be Christ like and godly and meek, mild, humble. And they are like the epitome of my worst enemy just because I shared my experience that they could not grasp. They could not even comprehend that it was true because it's so outlandish. And I get that now, but then I didn't. I didn't understand how sharing my story was so bad at the time and that people just couldn't hear the raw data, basically. They couldn't, un they could not, they didn't even want to believe it, let alone try to believe it. So they did what, most kids do, they'd retaliate and, and bully you or harass you when they think you're a liar. So um, that's when there was a day that I just had enough. And I remember standing in the kitchen and there was a knife on the, t on the counter. And I, I remember looking at the knife thinking, I just don't even want to exist. Like, what would it be like if I just stopped existing? And I remember that my eyes were closed or something because it was, I couldn't see anything. It was just dark and it was so silent. Like I couldn't hear anything, but then all of a sudden I didn't hear this faint little voice that says, you're going to be needed someday. And that's 
that's when I snapped out of that. And that, that filled me with hope. Like all of a sudden I had this hope that this is, you know, this is not something I have to live with the rest of my life, that there's something better, that I'm going to have a purpose that's not this. I'm not someone's punching bag. I'm not someone's target. I'm not, you know, the person that's the liar that eventually sometime in my life, I'm going to have this purpose. And so I would set out trying to, to find it. And, you know, of course it took a very long time to get there. I thought, well, once I have kids, you know, but it, it, there was still something there. There was still something missing. Like, okay, the kids are great. And they, they have a huge part in helping me understand what unconditional love is. It wasn't until I held my son that I remembered it, that I, it was familiar. And that goes back to when I was with my dad, because there was a gap between the last time I felt it and then holding my son for the first time. So when I started having kids, things started waking up in me and I started feeling alive again and that, okay, there is more to life. There is real happiness and true joy. And, and how could anybody, how can anybody walk away from this? And then all of a sudden my anger sets in because now I'm, I'm understanding what it feels like to have my own child. How could my mother walk away from me? So I had to deal with that all over again. So this is the, the cycle, right? So I'm going through cycles of life where I think I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. And the next thing you know, boom, <laughs> you know, something gets in, the, gets in the way. And I remember just before I um, had my children, there was another instance where life was just, it just seemed like a struggle to get anywhere. Like it was always something that was, hurt, you know, that hurt. And I, I didn't know I was living through these, this trauma. Like the trauma was always there. I didn't know that though. And I remember thinking I, I drove a Mustang GT and I had it souped up. I had the gear, the um, ratio and the gears, the rear gear um, upgraded. I was, you know, hanging out with race car drivers from the Southwest tour in California. And we worked in the pits. I painted the cars. I was, you know, flagging some of the races. So, of course, you know, I had this souped up car and I, I liked the speed. And I remember going to work. I was going 140 miles an hour. And I remember my tack only went that far. So I know I was going at least that far or that fast. And I kept seeing, you, know, you could see a blur of trees going by in your preferential vision. And I kept thinking, I wonder which tree I could hit. And I had that thought again where I just don't want to exist. And then I had that same voice, the same voice came back and said, you're still needed. So fast forward to today, and I know we're jumping over a lot, but I just want to tie this in before people think, you know, they get lost with that particular moment. It took me until after I found my father to find that purpose. And that's why I'm here today. Because now I have the lived experiences. I have my my education, my criminal justice degrees, I have my cybersecurity career, I have all of these things that come together and they actually bridge to my lived experiences and what gives me the power and the empowerment to speak today on a whole different level that a lot of people, you know, they, they think I can't even imagine. Well, not only can I imagine I lived it, I'm the living story of what happens to children. That go through this. Well, if I if I may, it's 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 really harrowing experience. Absolutely. Uh, bringing you back a little bit to to this sad experience you just mentioned. Uh, do you think your stepsister was abducted from her mom in the same fashion you were? No, um, and it's ironic that her mom also abandoned them. So my mom abandoned me and my dad, her mom abandoned her and her dad. So it's really weird <laughs> how we have a lot of similarities. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, why, why do you think then she hated you from that day one? If she wasn't missing her mom, so to speak, because she was like uh, abandoned, what, what, what was the beef, so to speak, with you who had 
nothing to do with anything what's taking place. Yeah, she had a personality disorder that went undiagnosed because you know one of our parents were really good at seeing or catching things that needed to be addressed. So, for example, when they witnessed her trying to strangle me, her father, Mo, chalked that off to sibling rivalry. Um, they just, my mom was never good in a, any kind of emergency, so she didn't respond in a way that you would think most parents would. Um, so later, it wasn't until Sona had her, her own children that she was diagnosed with bipolar, bipolar um, what was her official diagnosis? I forget the official diagnosis, but it, I think it's bipolar with, with um, schizophrenia tendencies. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking, yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like it. If she that she completely changed as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I actually have um, a picture that when I I was going through our family album and I was just snapping pictures, and so we'd have another digital record of all these fo- family photos. And as I was scrolling through them one day, um, you see her photos, but then all of a sudden I saw that one photo that captured the look that is just, that just almost knocked me out of my chair when I saw it <laughs> because it, it really freaked me out um that 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 could actually be captured on film so she she definitely had a uh, diagnosis that her that's actually genetic her grandmother also had the same one in fact her grandmother had multiple personalities and died as a different identity altogether like she totally walked away from her real identity her true identity and she lived and died by this other one that, that, that's very convenient so to speak <laughs> yeah but uh don uh, i know that we haven't reached the main part where you meeting your dad mm-hmm. but i'm kind of curious of something uh, that you mentioned in a in a very fast way you mentioned transgenerational uh trauma right mm-hmm. and i think uh like you know people are listening might be wondering what um kind of pushed your mom to you know act in this way abduct you and all that so can you explain a little bit deeper about what you meant by transgenerational trauma and how it manifested across uh, your family sure so if i look at my mother and her her parents when her mother was pregnant with her her father decided you know he he did not like children he didn't want anything to do with kids so as soon as he found out that his wives, and I, I do, that is plural, as soon as he found out any one of them were pregnant, he left them. So I'm not, I'm not saying polygamy or anything. I'm just saying he's been married several times. And as soon as there was a kid involved, he left. He was done. So he abandoned her from before she was even born. And that's where her trauma really begins because it, was, it started at the, the moment that she was even spoken that she was even realized so she was rejected by her biological father you know, and told about it so that sets off a little trauma for her and then her mother remarried and she was adopted by another person so there's where I get my my phrase where I talk about replacement parents where you know we're just someone else just steps into the role and all of a sudden they take on this is your father now and it's not as simple as that but what, when you're a child, there's no choice or recourse to that whatsoever. So she had that, those experiences um, herself. But then if we look at her grandmother, her mother's mother, she was 14 years old when um, her mother had died just before that. And her father remarried someone that was very young, you know, in comparison to him, almost, almost as young as his oldest child. So the kids did not like her and they tormented her. They were a little rambunctious and, you know, wild. So the father decided to marry the two oldest girls off and he married my great grandmother to a carnival man um, just so that they, they wouldn't have to go to the orphanage. The rest of the kids went to the orphanage. So now you have your, your own parent, one, your mother, your mother passes. And then your remaining parent, your father, chooses his wife over you and sends all of you away. So now we have more rejection. 
right? Now we have this trauma that is passed down from mother to mother to mother to me, right? Then let's look at the mother that died when she was 14. The mother um, that died had a, a rough life herself. So here is this, I can actually follow this pattern through the, at least the last five generations where we were either rejected or abandoned or something happened to where this, our parenting capabilities are repeated over and over again. So this trauma isn't just my trauma. This trauma that I'm carrying today is a trauma from my mother, from her mother, her mother, and then her mother. Because it's passed down through our DNA. So if you think of, if you look at the epigenetics of, of this, there's a lot that carries forward. And we're also what our learned experiences are. We learned behaviors that we just repeat because that's what we were taught. That's what we were exposed to. But this, uh, this abandonment uh, from parents in earlier generations, uh, we can think because the life was hard. Maybe it was difficult to, to have mm-hmm. right. a number of children. Uh, but when you were growing up, it, it wasn't uh, the time of, of harshness, so to speak, no. or financially and otherwise. What, what was the, was it just a psychological need to abandon because that's, that's how the brain works? Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step over you too. I honestly believe that if her, if my mom's new husband, if Mo didn't want to come and abduct me, she would have, she would have never abducted me because she was never that kind of mom. She wasn't the motherly type. She wasn't, she wasn't, um, treated that way when she was a child her mother didn't you know really want her so she wasn't really good at being a mom that in the in the way that you think moms are like moms are doting and loving and everything towards their children but that wasn't the case her mom wasn't like that I wasn't like that you know or she wasn't like that towards me now I am I totally changed how parenting is from here forward because as soon as I held my son that first moment is when this cycle broke it broke then but um, if you want to even look at it on my father's side my father lost his mother when he was 14 years old so she passes away leaving him an orphan because he never met his father he never knew who his father was so that's a whole different I don't know that that's rejection we don't know that it's abandonment because we don't know that his father ever knew about him. And if he did, why did he never meet him? So I now I have this coming from both sides of my family. Different outcomes or different reasons, but it's still part of what's handed down to future generations. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that uh, you, were, you were able and had power and courage to, to break this cycle. It's 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 really about the time to to move to move forward for the better. Yeah, and you know what's funny is um, I work with Dr. Tori quite a bit, and she played a video for me recently. And this guy was so intense in what he was talking about that it made me tense up, not in a bad way, but just like, oh my gosh, this guy's got me totally like mesmerized. But what he was saying was was exactly the right thing that I needed to hear at that particular moment, because he was saying you were born to change it. And it was with such intense um, emotion that he said it, that it was like speaking right through the skin, going right into the heart where I was born to change this. And a lot of, there's a lot of us out there that have the spark that have a desire to stand up and say, hey, you know, I'm not fighting to find and get back my lost time with my dad because I can't, right? He's gone. But if I can make a difference using that, that story, the, the, term, the trauma, all of these events to, to show what it does, the long-term effects are there. So when we're in, and I know this is kind of jumping, but I want to kind of finish that, that um, thought with when we're talking to kids today, we're telling you know, parents that maybe 
have been targeted and haven't seen their kids. And we tell them, we'll wait till they're 18 and they'll know what to do. Or when they're 18, then you can do something about it. One, you're, you're giving them both a life sentence, including the child. So it's a very selfish thing to say to anybody to say, wait until they're 18, because you're stealing the time. That's a theft. So you're stealing time that they deserve, the child deserved to have that parent in their life. They deserve to have the extended family in their life. And now you stole that from them because it's easier to just shut the case file and make everybody go away. So it's an injustice to do that. And what a lot of uh, people who suggest this uh, let's wait until 18, they will grow up, they get mm-hmm. better, and they will come back and they will look for you, blah, 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 uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, it took what, me 44 years. What what uh, what these people don't understand is that uh, when the child will come back, let's say the child will come back when he will be 18 or 20 years old or 30 years old, whatever years old, that child will not be as a child child, that will be an adult child. With completely different mindset, with completely di- different view, uh, with somewhat broken understanding, what to yeah, place? Yeah, you don't know if they're still. Place. Yeah, are they still brainwashed? Oh, yeah. So how long is it going to take for them to say, "Oh wow, I was uh, I was wronged, and I actually do need to go talk to my parent." They they don't automatically. That's that's not a switch. That's not something you can just turn on when you turn eighteen and you automatically instinctively know what to do. That just doesn't happen. So. If, if the child is severely brainwashed then and has this fear, because I was afraid. There was times that I found I was so close to finding my dad. I, I became a private investigator trying to find him. There was times that I was so close to him, but my mom would say things like, well, you know, because he was so dangerous. You know, he made a lot of friends, but he made enemies faster. The Hell, Hell's Angels wanted to kill him because he was, you know, so if you ever go to find him, you should carry a gun just in case. So you can protect yourself. These are things that she told me to try and keep me from finding him. So you can't say when a child turns 18, they're just going to do it because I was an adult and I came really close to finding him over and over again. But that fear sets in sometimes where you don't follow through or you let the obstacle that you ran into be the reason why you can't keep going. All right. And uh, another aspect is uh, also uh, very often overlooked is how the how the parent should approach the child who just reached out after let's say ten, fifteen, twenty odd years. Well, what are you gonna say to them? Hello, long time no see. What? Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Do I tell him the story, him or her the story, what I think took place? Or, well, and, uh, and how how is the kid, um, how is the story played out already for the child? Like, are they already, was there already conflict because the other parent just, you know, and when we're kids, we have to regulate the parent that's out of, out of character. The one that is, has the personality disorder, the one that needs to be protected or cared for the most because they're the emotional wreck, right? So the child can sense that and they align. So we know this, we know this story, right? That we align with the parent that is um, having the behavioral episodes because that keeps us safe and we have to stay safe. So we will do whatever we have to do to keep the peace and from being, or from getting in trouble ourselves, from being um, reprimanded or retaliated against because the other parent doesn't want to hear that we love our other parents that we want to see them. They don't want to hear that. So we have to regulate them. So while we're regulating, re- regulating them, is the other parent trying to get in and convince the child or the courts or anything that's public that they, they need to have access to their child, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that should be common sense that a parent would want to have access to their child. It's not like I just created, or I, create, I baked a cake right? Let's say I create, I bake this magnificent cake and I didn't get a piece of it. So I want my piece back. We're not talking about a cake. We're talking about a child that is 
got your chromosomes, your genes, everything, you know, half of you is part of that child. It's not like it's something you can just walk away from because that's not what parents do. Parents raise their children together throughout time in history. That's the normal. Now, all of a sudden, we have this practice where only one parent is required. And because it's too much of a conflict, we're just going to ignore that and we're just going to give it to the what we, can, we think is the better parent in a courtroom. Well, I don't think the court should have that decision capability because they don't know the dynamics of the parenting and they shouldn't remove a parent without proof that there is harm that can be done to the child. So that kind of, that kind of went off on a side rail there, but <laughs> I get really passionate about that particular conversation. I, I would like to, to, to go back a little bit and, and ask you, uh, from the day you were taken back to your uh, by your mother, and uh, of course, uh, as you explained, your stepsister disliked you a lot. And uh, as I understand, the family life, the new family life, wasn't going that great. Were there any reason why we decided to keep you anyways, even though things were not going as smooth as we probably hoped or planned for? And uh, this this child who who's supposed to be hopefully mellow and just enhance the family dynamics became almost let's say a nuisance. Yet yet we still kept you. Any idea why why we took that step? Why why not return you after let's say a year, couple of years when we saw that nothing is working out? You know I don't I don't know why it was never even considered to let me see my father because it was there was such a great attempt to conceal me from him. We moved, they changed my name. Uh, you know, he had, uh, my stepfather adopted me when I was eight. So from the time I was five, he didn't ado uh, legally adopt me until I was eight. So what was the reason behind, you know, all that? Well, one, they wanted to join a church and in order for me to be baptized, I had to have my father's consent. So that kind of leads towards, well, you need to be her father legally so that we don't have to go find her real dad. Right. So when they went to do the adoption, there was an affidavit that was required to fill out that talked about my biological father. And I have a copy of it right here, actually, where it backdates the, the time that the last time my father saw me and that he hasn't been involved, nor has he paid support. And it's the, the funny part about it is I already I know the timeline. Right. We already know it's established. Not only is it established, established verbally but it's also in written in my late stepfather's memoir of when they adopted or uh, abducted me so we know that it was right after they got married in what year so um that that is locked in <clears throat> so the affidavit date though is backdated over a year from the time that they admit to abducting me so they lied on the affidavit so that they could have him adopt me. And since he was ready, willing, and able to step in, it made it look like, well, he's already been taking care of her. So why not? So the state said, well, we'll just go ahead and we'll waive the mandatory. You know, it's a state statute in the state of Oregon. We're going to waive the, the investigation to locate the biological father because we're going to take the mother's word for it. And because the mother has a father replacement already, we're just going to go ahead and let the adoption go. So again, I was, that was, um, that was very, an unjust thing to do to me as a person because the state was um, complicit in allowing a man to steal another man's child. When it comes right down to it, that's exactly what happened. He was legally allowed to steal someone else's child. And uh, when the documents were filled, uh, did they use your uh, father's real name or did they yes. invented something just nope. to steal that? No, they used his real name. They had my real name listed on there, too, as well. Um, so they knew his they knew his name, but they never tried to find him. Now, if you think about it, I would have been reunited with my father at the age of eight instead of 48. Right. And uh, when it came... Um... When it came to your name, uh, you said that uh, you were literally snatched 
out of a place. And uh, I, I presume some sort of investigations were going on. And uh, as you mentioned, three years later, we tried to uh, we tried to adopt you with your real name. Uh, were there no records or anything that this person is still missing or found or not not being searched listed, for anymore? Yeah, I was listed as found. It took them three weeks, so they were searching for this missing child for three weeks before they finally caught up with us in Colorado and found me. So the police showed up at the door and asked my mom if you know if I was there. And so they had that whole conversation about, you you know, you should have talked to the father. You should have called. You should have said something. You should have gone through us. You know, but basically she said, well, she's my daughter. And, she, you know, that was the end of that conversation. So um, because my my biological father and my mom were never married, not legally, there was a question about common law, but they weren't legally married. She was automatically considered the, the rightful parent. Right. Because back then this was in the in the 70s, there was, you know, mom's always got the kids. There was no argument, even though he was on the birth certificate, he wasn't married to her. So she was able to get away with it. And, and that's why we didn't bother to, to treat it like a full blown abduction. Yeah, well, they treated it like an abduction in the, you know, in L.A. But once once I was found there wasn't really anything that they could do. So my dad would have had to have sued my mom to get access to me, which at that point we had already moved. So I don't know if he was able not to, it wasn't able to find us or to keep up with it. I think he was struggling financially, um, trying to take care of a kid while he was going to ground school to become a pilot. So, you know, he wasn't, working the full-time job while he was trying to become a pilot. My mom was working the full-time job and they, they, they agreed that both their stories agree to that. So he was, you know, all of a sudden a struggling single dad trying to keep a roof over our heads. So I don't think he had the financial, plus he didn't have parents to go back to. He lost track of his own family. So he didn't have financial support through family at all. He was all by himself. And and what about the police? Let's say uh, they found you three weeks later. Did they inform your dad that hey, you know, we found her yeah. there. She she's okay. Do you yeah. want to do something, anything about it? Was it? A- yeah. Um. He came up. He came up to to the house. He flew up from L.A. to Colorado and came to the house and asked to see me. And my mom refused to allow him to see me. He tried to call. He's um tried to um. He tried to get access to me, but she just kept slamming the door in his face and telling him, no, it wasn't going to happen. And she told him the last time, you're never going to see her again. And I think he believed it at that point. Now he did try. He, and my, I had, um, which I didn't know, but I've had, I had three brothers and they were also trying to locate me when they got old enough, trying to find me to help, you know, put our family back together for their dad. They, they wanted their dad to be happy and have his little girl back. So at that point, they had no idea what my name was, where I was living, nothing. And it was a lot harder back then. We didn't have the internet to just do a search and reach out and find him, which is how, how I ended up finally finding my dad in the first place was through social media. Now, abso- absolutely gobsmacked by your story, honestly. All right, everyone, this is the end of the first part of a three-part series with Dawn. To hear more about Dawn's story and her advice to others like her, come back next week and listen to part two and part three. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, 
we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then. Oh,